0: Paul is explaining to us the essential difference of Christianity from every other kind of religion. When I say Christianity, I mean true Christianity. And the real difference between true Christianity and every other religion, including what you might call churchianity, the real difference is that in every other religion, it's mankind reaching up to God in some way reaching up through human wisdom, reaching up through human effort, reaching up through human achievement, reaching up through human sacrifice. True Christianity is God reaching down to us from heaven and saying, believe upon me. It's not about your wisdom. It's not about your achievement. It's not about your accomplishment. It's not about your good works. The ground of your relationship with me is based on what I give to you, what I've done for you in Jesus Christ. Now this means that the law of Moses, which tells us how to live before God, and our performance by that law that isn't our standing before God. Now a worthy question would be to ask then, then what place does the law have in our life? Was it a mistake when God gave the Ten Commandments? And he was just kind of making up his mind until he sent Jesus many thousands of years later? No, no, no mistake in the Ten Commandments. No mistake in the law of Moses. Paul's going to deal with that question. And then after that, he's going to deal with another question, which I'm very excited about talking about this morning. But let's jump right into it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. See, the law kept us under guard. It kept us under protective custody. We realized that we couldn't just go out and sin any way we pleased because the law of God was against it. And as human culture and its human laws were based in many ways upon the law of God, it kept sin in check. It was a protective custody. God had a purpose in the law. It held us in protective custody. It's a gift from him. It's a benefit from him. But that was, if you look at verse 23, before faith came. Before faith came, we needed the law to hold us in this protective custody. But if you notice in verse 23, we were kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. In other words, God had a purpose for the Ten Commandments. God had a purpose for the law of Moses. And the great purpose of it was to prepare us for the coming and the work of Jesus Christ. God never gave the Ten Commandments or the law of Moses that we would find through it a path to please God and and achieve something before him. No. No, the real purpose of the law in God's giving us it was to show us that we couldn't keep it. Now, if there's anybody either today or in years past who believe that they can be justified before God by their own keeping of the law of God, then they don't really understand the law of God. Jesus thought to emphasize this point in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, in Jesus's day, just like in our day, there were many people who sort of dislocated their shoulders trying to pat themselves on the back because they felt they kept the law of God. They'd say, well, you know, the Ten Commandments say you shall not murder. I never murdered anybody. I guess I'm right before God. And Jesus said, well, wait a minute. It's true that the law says you never murder anybody. But you know, you can murder somebody in your attitude and in your heart without ever actually killing them in actual fact. Matter of fact, Jesus would explain, sort of as he brought this out in the Sermon on the Mount, The idea behind Jesus' explanation is, you know, it's really no great credit to us if the only thing that keeps us from murder is our own lack of courage or the lack of uh, availability of a a risk-free opportunity. But how many of us, if we had the courage or if we had a sufficiently risk-free opportunity, might just pull the trigger, might just plunge the knife if you really believed you could get away with it? Jesus is exposing that the law against murder speaks more to just actual murder. It speaks to the attitude of our heart. And so in saying that, Jesus said, you're guilty of the law. You're guilty of the law. I'm guilty of the law. Even though in some ways, in outward ways, we do keep it. So it tells us we need Jesus. He brings out the point even more in verse 24 where he says, therefore, the law was our tutor... To bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Very interesting how Paul says that's the whole purpose of the law again. To bring us to Christ. To bring us to Jesus. And if the law is not being presented in a way that brings people to Jesus, then it's not being presented correctly. There's been some controversy in our nation in years past about the posting of the Ten Commandments upon the the walls of schoolrooms. And some people think that's a very bad thing. Oh, you should put the Ten Commandments on the wall of a schoolroom. Uh, Well, who knows what the kids are going to do next? You know, maybe they'll stop lying. Maybe they'll stop, you know, being, being bad. You know, God forbid. Of course, the fear was that it was some kind of an establishment of religion. But if anybody looks at the Ten Commandments, if anybody looks at the law of God, one thing that they should know, one thing God wants them to know, is that while it is God's expected standard of conduct for us, it's not the way he intends us to be saved. It's not the path to heaven. And so when we realize that, that the purpose of the law, verse 24, is to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, that's the real question. So the question isn't any longer, well, do you keep the law? The question is, have you come to Christ by faith? By faith. That's the issue. Did you notice a word that Paul used there in verse 24? He says, the law was our tutor. And then he says in verse 25, but after faith has come... We're no longer under a tutor. You see, once we've come to a relationship of faith, we no longer have to live under our tutor, even though we remember the behavior that he taught us. We respect our tutor, that is the law, but we don't live under him. We live under Jesus by faith. Now, when it says tutor there, it's really not the best translation of the original word that Paul used. The original word that he used describes a certain office of person that we really don't have in modern culture. When you think of a tutor, you think of somebody who helped somebody study, right? Well, that's really not the, the word Paul's using here. Nor is he using the word for a teacher. Paul is using a word, again translated here, tutor, that describes somebody who basically oversaw the discipline and the conduct of a child. Think of a boy in a Roman family. And uh, his parents are busy, and, and his parents are interested in raising him, right? So his father invests care, and his mother invests care in him. But, you know, they're also very concerned about the boy, so they entrust him to the person Paul translates here as a tutor. And what this person would do is be with the boy all the time. He'd make sure he got to school. He'd make sure he did his homework. He'd make sure he came home from school. He'd make sure that when he was playing with the other kids, he wasn't bad. He'd follow the kid all around and just keep an eye on him the whole time. Now, what's very interesting is whenever this particular person was pictured in the ancient world and, they, you know, have paintings or carvings or sculptures, he's always carrying a stick. Because you know what he'd do. The boy's smart enough, pop, knock it off, kid. He would do it with the authority of the father because he was hired by the father to, to oversee the boy. And so every time the boy would mess up, pop with the stick, pop. You know what this guy was like? I was trying to think of a modern day analogy. The only one that came to mind, it's not perfect, but maybe you might get the point. I thought of when I was in junior high school, the vice principal. And you know what the vice principal in a junior high school is all about, right? He's all about discipline. He's the enforcer of discipline in the school. And either literally or figuratively, he walks around with a stick. He's always ready to pop person who's doing wrong. Well, that's what the tutor does in the picture Paul's drawing here. Now do you see what he means when he says that the law was our tutor? There I am going along and, and I tell a lie. And instantly I remember that the law says you shall not bear false witness. Pop! The law just popped me. Wow, I'm bad. And so I get this pop, this pop, this pop from the law all the time. There it is. It's my tutor. It's my schoolmaster. Now I come to Jesus Christ. I come to maturity in Him. I grow up into the fullness of Christ. Now my heart wants to be honest. Now I don't forget the lessons that my tutors taught me. I remember them. But I don't live under His rod anymore. I live under a higher law, the law of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon wrote on this passage and he said, The law ceases its office as schoolmaster when it comes to be written in our hearts. Boys have their lessons on chalkboards, but men have their laws in their minds. We trust a man where we should carefully watch a boy. When the child becomes a man, his father and mother do not write down little rules for him as they did when he was a little child in a jumpsuit. Neither do they set servants over him to keep him in order. He's trusted. His manliness is trusted. His honor is trusted. His best feelings are trusted. So now, brethren, we who have believed in Jesus have the law written here in our hearts and it corresponds with what is written there in the scriptures. So you see what Paul's saying. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after the law has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Thank you, Lord. Now I understand what your purpose for the law of God was. You weren't making a mistake with the Ten Commandments. You had a purpose for it, to bring me to Jesus Christ. Now, once you're at Jesus Christ, where are you? You know, the great thing about legalism, the great thing about living under the law is you always know where you stand, right? I mean, you got a measuring stick all the time. You always know where you're at. Now you come into this bold, brave, new ground of living in Jesus Christ. Where are you? I mean, what's your identity? I don't have the law to measure myself by as a measuring stick anymore, whether I'm good or bad. Now Paul will tell you, this is your identity. This is who you are. And so look at verse 26. He says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Isn't that amazing? You're all sons of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Now compared to what was being taught among the Galatians, this was a revolutionary statement in traditional Jewish thinking. And again, this was carried over by some Jewish Christians into the revolutionary statement. In traditional Jewish thinking, and again, this was carried over by some Jewish Christians into the church, in traditional Jewish thinking, your standing before God was measured by your obedience to the law. And so to truly be close to God, to truly be considered a son of God, you had to be extra observant of the law, just as the scribes and the Pharisees were. You know, the Pharisees were the people in Jesus' day who said, oh, we're going to be observant of the law. We're going to do everything we can to be right before God. And they say, well, you know, the Bible says that you shouldn't eat any meat unless it's been properly drained in a kosher butchering manner. So therefore, there they are, they're they're drinking their super big gulp, you know, after a long day, and a, a gnat falls into it. They say, oh, I can't eat that gnat. It hasn't been properly bled in a kosher manner. And so they will strain out the gnat. And that's why Jesus said they strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Because they they observe small, small little things, but they miss the big, big picture. You see, this is what they were doing. Now Jesus says you can be considered a son or a daughter of God. How? Look at it. By faith in Christ Jesus. You're as much a son of God as anybody else by faith in Christ Jesus and friends. That's an impressive standing, isn't it? That means that you have a special relationship with God as a loving, caring father. If you're a child of God, you have a special closeness. If you're a child of God, you have a place of special affection. If you're a child of God, you've got a special care and attention. He cares about you. He loves you. He'll take care of you. That's what fathers do for their children, don't they? You're son of God, he says, by faith in Christ Jesus. Thank you. And then he says too that the, the method here that we see is impressive. You're all sons of God, how? Through faith. By trusting in him. And again, let's remind ourselves this isn't just believing that Jesus lived and walked the earth and, and even that he died on a cross. It's trusting in him. It's relying on him and relying on nothing else for our place before God. Now, if we're sons of God through faith in Jesus that gives us one place right right oh great i know who i am i'm a son i'm a daughter of God Paul's going to take us even deeper look at it here in verse 27 for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ isn't that an interesting phrase is there baptized into Christ what does that mean well think about a person being baptized into water what happens When a person is baptized into water, they are immersed in water, and the water covers them over. You look down upon them in the pool, and all of a sudden you don't really even see them. You see the vague shadowy outline, you know that they're there, but over them you see the water. You see more water than you see them. That's how it is when we're immersed in Jesus. We're covered over in Him. People see us for sure, but even more so they see Jesus. We're covered over by Jesus. We're immersed by him. Friends, you need to be immersed in Jesus Christ, covered over by him. Your identity, your person, it's all found in him. Covered over in Jesus, immersed in him. You know how some of us are. We just want to be dipped a little bit. We just want to see how the water is. We, we just want to, you know, go under a little bit into Jesus and maybe leave some part out, right? You, you want to leave your head out because you want to think your way, not Jesus' way. So I'll go in the water up to my neck. Thank you, Lord. Or you, you want to, you know, leave your uh, your uh, your your hand out so that you can, you know, uh, hit somebody with it. Well, I won't put that on the water and I'll leave that out. Or you want to... Take your, your, your checkbook out and leave that out from on the way. You don't want that to get immersed under. Friends, that, that shouldn't be the case at all. After first service, uh, uh, Wayne Walliver came up and he told me that when he remembered a story, about him when he was in Vietnam and he was marching through a river and uh, the water was up to his chest and there he was with his, with his rifle and his helmet and all this up above his head walking through. and He also had in his hand a, a, a can of angel food cake. And he wanted that can of angel food cake. He said, oh, I want that. You know, i got to keep that safe. And then he thought, you know, I'm going to slip in this river and watch out. And before you know it, he did. He slipped and he went under. He lost his rifle, lost his helmet, lost everything. But what was sticking out? That can of angel food cake. (laughs) Well, you know, that's how some of us are with Jesus. Well, just keep something out. No, I don't want that to be baptized. I don't want that to be immersed. One time... Gary Monty and I were baptizing a, a very elderly gentleman that he had led to the Lord at a rest home, and we went over to Chuck Carlson's house and we were in the uh, backyard there, and we were going to baptize him in the jacuzzi and when you baptize somebody who's elderly, it's kind of a challenge because you sense how frail their body is and you want to be careful with them. And this man was gloriously saved and his family was excited and we wanted to baptize him. So there we are in the jacuzzi and Gary and I are working on this together because the guy's frail. And so we're lowering him back into the jacuzzi. And, you know, he's an old man. We wanted to be kind to him. So we didn't put him all the way under. We just kind of left his face out. You know, we didn't want to shock him, Good heavens, give the guy a heart attack or something. So we, we, oh, we just left his face out and then we brought him back up. We brought the guy out and he turned, he looked around and he goes, you didn't put me all the way under. And we said, well, you're going down again. And we put him down and put him all the way under. Friends, that's how it should be, baptized into Christ. You don't see so much of me anymore. You mostly see Jesus. And by the way, shouldn't it be stressed that this is the baptism that really saves us? our immersion into Jesus. If a person is not baptized into Christ, they could be dunked a thousand times into water and it would make no eternal difference. But if a person has been baptized into Christ, then they should follow through and do what Jesus told them to do. That's receive baptism as a demonstration of their commitment to Jesus. Now, if that's not enough to stress our identification with Christ, look at it here in verse 27 again. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Do you know what he means by that? When he uses the figure of speech of put on Christ, he's using the figure of speech of people clothing themselves with Jesus Christ. It's like you're putting Jesus on his clothing, as a suit of Jesus. How are you dressed today? Did you put on Christ? You know, how we dress has a real impact on how we think and act. You know, you're all dressed up. you Put on a nice suit, tuxedo, you're not going to go out and mow the lawn like that, are you? No. Matter of fact, you, you, you dress nice and you go to dinner, you sit up a little straighter, don't you? You say please and thank you at the table instead of give me that. You got more manners, right? You're dressed up nicer. How you're has, a, has an effect on how you conduct yourself. It also affects the way other people see you, don't they? So here are the comments I get when I wear a tie and a jacket. <laughs> We didn't recognize you, pastor. (laughs) My, don't you look nice. And all these, it's, it's very kind remarks, of course, but it affects how you see yourself. It affects how other people see you. Paul says you should dress appropriate to the occasion every day of your life. You should put on Christ. People should see that you belong to him by looking at your life. You should live with the awareness that you're adorned with Jesus. And friends, this isn't play acting. This isn't like little kids dressing up and playing dress up. You know, oh, I'm a fireman, I'm an astronaut, I'm a beauty queen. It's not like that. Because there's a spiritual reality behind it, right? We have been baptized into Christ. Let's put on Christ. Here's the stress, it's on our identity in Jesus through faith. Friends, I hope we can grasp onto this this morning. But you're not just simply associated with Jesus. You're identified in him. Let me see if I can explain it in a way that, that everybody can grab a hold of. Take the picture baptized into Christ, right? Well, Here's a pool of water. There it is. And I'm standing beside the pool. I'm associated with the water, right? It's right beside me. But I'm not in it. When I go under the water, then I'm in it. Or, or here's a suit of clothes. And I'm standing right next to it. There it is. It's hanging on a hanger. And I'm associated with the clothes, right? I might even be holding the clothes. But I'm not in it. You're not just associated with Jesus, your identity is found in him. So if he's a son of God, so are we. If he stands righteous before God the Father, so do we. If he has free access before the throne of God, then so do we. If he has victory over spiritual powers of darkness, then so do we. We're not associated with Jesus, we are in Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that just glorious for ourselves and the Lord? But it has repercussions far beyond that. Look at it here, verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, what this means is that because my identity's in Christ and your identity's in Christ and your identity's in Christ, then I mean, I guess that means we're all on the same footing, right? You're no better than me. I'm no better than you. Our identities it's all in Jesus Christ. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. And though some people want to come along and, and draw dividing lines in the church, God erases them. When God looks down from heaven, there's no dividing line in the church between white or black, between rich or poor, between smart and not so smart, between any category you might want to make. No, no, Jesus is our identity. And that's far more important than any prior identity we had. And sadly, some Christians still draw lines today. Some Christians draw lines between denominations and draw lines between races and draw lines between nations and draw lines between political parties or economic classes. It shouldn't be so in the church. We're one in Jesus Christ. Let me give a very concrete for example here. Let's say you as a Christian have certain political ideas and, and political understandings and and here's an a, a unbeliever over here who shares your political sensibilities. They, 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 they agree with you on all that. And then over here is a believer in Jesus Christ, someone who is also identified in Christ who doesn't share your political perspectives. Now, if you feel you have more common ground with the unbeliever who shares your political perspective, then with the believer who doesn't share it, what's more important to you? Your identity in Christ or your political perspective? Your political perspective is more important to you. Because that common ground is more precious to you than the common ground of identity in Jesus Christ. Now friends, that's what it has to be for us, right? The most important thing in our life, who we see ourselves as, as identified in Jesus Christ. How we identify ourselves touches each and every one of us every day. Well, who are you, and, and what do you do, people ask. Well, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, I'm a housewife, I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other thing. And that's supposed to tell you who you are, right? No, it doesn't, does it? Who you are, that's who you are in Jesus Christ. That's your identity. People search all the world over. They, they look for a place in their family, but their family's falling apart. They, they look for a place for the co-workers, but they lose their job. They, they look for a place among their friends, but then their friends burn them and betray them. They look for a place among their nation, but then that just goes off awry as well. No, friends, our secure, enduring identity is who we are in Jesus Christ. And that's why he says there, look at it there in verse 28. At the end of the verse, he says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, every one of you. The the weak Christian here this morning, I'm one with you in Jesus Christ. The the backslidden Christian here this morning, I'm one with you in Jesus Christ. The the Christian who has a great understanding of spiritual things, the Christian has a small understanding. We're one together. Why? Because our common ground isn't our performance. Our common ground isn't uh, our wisdom. Our common ground isn't any of those things. Our common ground is who we are in Jesus Christ. We're connected. We're connected to Jesus, right? We're one in him. That makes us connected all with one another. Then there's one more glorious connection. Did you see it there? It's an awesome truth here of verse 29. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know what that means? It means you walk in the same parade of God's people that Abraham walked in. And that Paul walked in and that Peter walked in, and that uh, Polycarp walked in, and that Augustine walked in, and that Martin Luther walked in, and that Charles Spurgeon walked in, and John Wesley, and Jonathan Edwards, and, and Billy Graham, and anybody today. We're all walking in the same parade of faith, right? We're all connected with one another. It's not just connected now, we're connected throughout all the ages. We're Christ. Look at it, friends. Verse 29 says, And if you are Christ, that's the issue. The issue isn't, are you under the law? The issue isn't, are you a Jew or a Gentile? The issue isn't, are you slave or free? The issue isn't, are you a man or a woman? The only issue is, do you belong to Jesus Christ? It's belonging to Jesus that sets us free from every place. No, if we're Christ, then we know where we belong. Find our place in eternity, don't we? Because we're sons and daughters of God. We find our place in society because we're brothers and sisters in the family of God. We find our place in history because we're part of God's plan for all ages. We're related spiritually to Abraham by our faith in Jesus. Friends, you have a place. You don't have to live with that aimless emptiness of heart wondering where do I belong? How do I fit in? Who am I? You're a son or a daughter of God. You're a brother or sister to other people in the body of Christ. You're part of God's people that spans in that panorama throughout all centuries, throughout all ages. And I'd like to consider it with it being a a three dimensional attachment. This is who you are in three different dimensions. It has a height to it, right? It connects us to God. You're connected to God, you belong to Him. It has a breadth or a width. It connects us to each other in Jesus. Here we are. We're all connected. We belong to each other. Then finally, it has a length. It connects us with the long line of God's people throughout all ages. We're in the same parade as them. You see that there's not a single person who needs to leave this room this morning with the feeling that they don't belong, that they don't know where their place in the world is, God looks at you here and he says, not only do I have a place for you in this world, I've got a place for you in eternity. Find your place in Christ. That's where your identity is. As you let it sink down deep into your soul, it'll absolutely revolutionize your life. So it needs to sink down deep to do that. We better pray and ask God to, to make that real. Let's pray together.